HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by Henry's Wine and Spirit. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring food for the eyes, how the art and culinary worlds collide. It's incredibly elaborate. It's a feast for the eyes, a banquet dinner with garnished ham, turkey, and an array of accompaniments. We shot uh, baguettes with, like, paint dripping off of them with the blue, white, and red from the French flag. Oh, what did the student tell me? They said, the camera eats first. And it's so true. It's so true. Tune in to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guests are Volta Fasari and Brom Callahan. We'll talk to Volta and Brom about the wines of Barolo, Elvio Cogno, and more. We'll taste, I thought we were going to taste a Barolo, but Volta brought in four bottles, so we'll, uh, we'll taste those during the show. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Volta Fasari is the co-owner and winemaker at Elvio Cogno, a multi-generational winery in the Novello Commune in the Piedmont region of Italy. Walter had worked side-by-side -side with his father-in-law, Elvio Cogno, for over 25 years, producing iconic Barolos before Elvio's passing in 2016. Now Walter carries on the tradition with his wife, Nadia. Bram Callahan is a master sommelier and corporate beverage director for the Himmel Hospitality Group, a leading restaurant group in Boston and now in New York City. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Walter and Bram. It's great to be here. Thanks for joining Thank us. Thank you. Thank you very much. For um, I want to... Uh, get into a lot of things today, but before we get into anything, I want people to know who they're listening to. So, Walter, we're going to start with you. Tell me about your journey in life and wine 
that got you to where you are today, which is basically running the winery. Where did it start? And don't start like in kindergarten. When did the wine thing start? To be, uh, thank you for the question. To be a, a great winemaker today, you need to be very uh, modern because uh, you need to follow many aspects, not only uh, the viticulture, the, the seller, but also the marketing and, uh, and the sales. That is not easy, but uh, with only with great passion we can uh, follow everything and uh, produce great wines. What, of course, what is most important is uh, to, be, to remain viticulture and put always the hand into the wine. But the question was, how did you get into wine? You know, when, when did you start? Where, where, was it in your family? Did you decide you wanted to become a winemaker? I mean, where was that moment where everything ascended after that? Yes, uh, this is a complicated question, but beautiful question, because uh, I decided to become a winemaker for, really for passion, uh, thanks to, first of all, of my grandfather, uh, Eugenio, that uh, uh, introduced me when I was a child uh, to going in the winter to, to follow the, the, the winemaking. And then, uh, thanks to my father-in-law, Elvio Conio, I, I learned uh, to make w w great wines, but most of all, he transmitted me a great passion about wine. Right. That need for uh, to need to uh, to follow the the the, the situation, the, the complicated situation, to make a, a unique product like the like like the one. Right. Um, Brom, talk to me about. Let's talk about what you were doing before you became a master psalm. Why you decided to become a master psalm. And you know, currently you're overseeing a large restaurant group. You know, when was that wine moment, and when was that moment that you decided you were going to dedicate your life to the master psalm exam? Yeah, it was kind of a, a happy accident, I guess. So I had put myself through undergraduate and graduate school working in restaurants, um, and had always had lots of jobs. And I'd worked in a wine shop starting when I was literally 17, um, and learned a lot about wine, but never thought I was going to do it professionally. And um, I was in my, I finished my master's degree and I was going into my doctorate program at Boston College and I was, I was running a wine program full time and going to grad school full time. And I was having way more fun selling wine and I was traveling and enjoying it. And it wasn't like I wasn't enjoying the graduate work. There was just pieces of it that I really enjoyed and pieces that I didn't. Right. And my graduate advisor could see that I was having more fun at work than I was in school. Really? That's yeah. a good graduate she's advisor. She's great. Yeah. She's, and I still, I still see her uh, and talk to her um, somewhat regularly. So she, and she said to me, listen, you know, your doctorate will always be here. You can always come back and do it. Why don't you see if this works for you and go try the wine thing out. And so it was at that point where I decided to at least become somewhat serious about wine. So um, a friend of mine talked me into sitting the advanced exam. Um, and I've been working in restaurants at that point for probably 10 plus years, 12 years, working with wine for 10 years. And I, uh, I would say accidentally passed the advanced exam 
uh, the first time I sat. <laughs> um, it's better to be lucky than good, right? And I had right. a lot of, I think I got, if, you know, if passing was a 60, I think I got a, like, you know, a 60. Like, that was <laughs> what it was. Um, but I got over Take and, it. yeah, hey, man, C's and D's get degrees. So right. um, I got over and um, then was faced with the reality that I now had the opportunity to sit the master sommelier exam, which is it just in itself is, is a very small group of people that could even get the chance to do that. Um, and, you know, when I sat, um, I thought I was prepared and uh, it slapped me around pretty hard. Uh, and I was doing other things. So I was running a big wine program at that point. Uh, I was running a, a, a food and wine festival uh, at that Busy. point as well. Yeah, just doing a lot of things and um, not necessarily giving the exam the respect that it really deserved. Um, because it's a much hard, I, I'm just used to being good at stuff, and it, it was one of those things that just knocked me around. So it um, took me three t attempts. I essentially was on the layaway plan where I passed a piece every year. And That's then okay. uh, after three tries, I uh, was able to get over it. And then um, since then, have uh, really kind of expanded my role in, in overseeing a number of restaurants, a lot of mentoring, traveling, teaching, that kind of stuff. When so. did you get to Himmel? So I've actually worked for uh, Himmel Hospitality Group since 2006. Oh, that's a long time. I didn't realize that. Yeah. So, and when I was in grad school, I was working for them. Right. Uh, and so they saw you grow. Yeah, they've seen me. I mean, I started as a food runner in their restaurant. Right. So they they uh, have seen me do pretty much everything. On the they must side. like you. Um, all right. So that's who we're talking to now, Walter. Yes. No one knows Barolo as well as you, or you know Barolo as well as anyone. So what I want you to do is. Um, Tell me a little about the region before we talk specifically about the wines. I mean, you've worked 25 vintages with your uh, father-in-law. Um, you're in Rivera, one of the 11 com communes in Barolo. Tell me about what you deal with. Tell me about climate. Tell me about the geography. Tell me a little about Tawar. The grape varietals are easy because it's fairly simple. But just give me a little, you know, uh, education on, you know, where you're growing and making your wines. Yeah, Barolo is uh, is something that uh, is our in our DNA because the family work uh, behind this this wine since the fourth generation. And uh, for this reason, uh, we we make uh, a road in this in these years in this long time to continue to produce wine with great tradition with uh, great personality we live in a in a, a huge country in a huge place that is uh, lange where you uh, for the for this i feel me very very lucky because uh, the nature get, uh, has the possibility to make a wine, so magic like the Barolo and the Barbaresco. So you're, you're dealing with a Nebbiolo grape? Right. What kind of climates, soils, um, are, we, yeah, are, are, are we on hilly yeah. slopes, the right facing? I mean, how are you situated? Yeah, Lange is a, a place that uh, uh, the, the Nebbiolo grape find the right condition to grow uh, in the better way possible. Uh, is a, a very unique grape for this characteristic that you cannot plant everywhere. Is a wine that needs a special soil condition. Which is what? I mean, what's the composition? Limestone, is it limestone? Limestone clay, not too much sand, but 
uh, not only. There is a, a combination through, through soil and microclimate. Uh, it's only in, the, in this situation that we all find the right condition to, to get the best uh, uh, characteristic. Uh, Nebbiolo needs a greater course of temperature through night and day to have a perfect maturation. It's a wine that uh, like uh, and need sun, so the exposure is really important. South exposure, southeast, southwest, but south. Is it generally dry? Yeah, dry, but uh, needs water because we don't have, uh, we don't, allow to make irrigation in Piemonte, you in Ilanga. You have neb uh, the neblina, the yeah. fog, so yeah. that gives you... Nebbiolo is mean from nebbia, but from the time that we pick the grape, because it's the last is the latest, later harvest of, of, the, uh, of the region. Uh, but the need water that you comes from the, the winter, the snowy winter that we have in Piemonte. Because uh, Lange is in, uh, on the border to the Liguria, where you have the sea, and the influence of the sea on our microclimate is quite important. Because the warm air comes from the sea, from the Liguria, and meet the cold air from the north of the Alps, and the snow a lot for this reason. Now is yeah. that, are we talking Lange in general? Barolo or, 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 or Rivera, I mean, it, those influences are hitting the area. Rivera is, is very influenced about the snow. Okay. That's so your water comes from the winter and the snow. 380 meters is quite high, high elevation, but uh, all Lange is influenced about this uh, condition, climate condition. Right. Uh, because the soil is not is different, but not too much different. Right. Barbaresco and Barolo. In Barbaresco, you have more sandy soil. In Barolo, you have more limestone. But uh, what is important that the the this climate get to have enough water that for support the maturation and right. the growing season in the hot summer because. We have hot summer in Piemonte. But generally speaking, even in the hot summer, the winter snow providing the water is enough for yeah, the because the, no, the, the, the difference through the rain and the snow is quite, is quite heavy. Right. Because the rain falling down in the hills, because our step, we have a step hills, and make erosion only, and don't enter in the, in the deep layer of the, of the soil. But uh, the, the, the snow melt and uh, the water can enter into the deep layer and remain for all, all season in, in right. the, and helps the roots to grow. Rome is a very unique place where you're standing, if you stand in Rivera where he is, you can see the Alps on one side and you can see the ocean on the other side. And you think it's crazy. about that, <laughs> that combination coming together, yeah. like, it's, it's very unique. So. so Bram, tell me about R Rivera which is where they grow their wines. Um, sometimes, not sometimes, it, it is one of the less recognized crews and 
certainly not celebrated like some of the other ones. Is sure, that sure. is that true? Well, I, you know, I think the, Why con- and- the conversation about Barolo in general. So Barolo has been around for a very long time and has been very well respected as one of the great wines of Italy for, uh, you know, kind of as long as we talked about great wine in Italy, Barolo and Barbaresco were always kind of the quote unquote king and queen, right? Um, and so, but there was a mentality, and it was just based on how um, you would farm and make wine 50 or 60 years ago, where there wasn't, even though there were named vineyards, there wasn't a mentality where you would put that on the label. You would make a Barolo from all of these sites that you had and, and kind of combine them together. And it wasn't until, I don't know, really 40 years ago, 35 years ago, where you start to see people putting um, these crews, what we're calling now crews, uh, or delineated sites on the labels, um, and starting to bring in the idea where where site is really important, um, kind of following that Burgundian model where you talk about the premier crews and the grand crews, and there's definitely the equivalent quality in, in, in Piedmont as well, but one of the things that makes Piedmont, I think, specifically, and, and we talk about Barolo Barbaresco overall, different, in, in the Lange, you have Nebbiolo, but you also have Barbera and Dolcetto, uh, and a host of other grapes, right? In Burgundy, you're really talking about Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. So right. there's not the diversity of, of plantings across the hill in elevation. And so with Nebbiolo, it always kind of migrated to these top sites because they would be slightly more favorable. Um, and you would have Barbera or Dolcetto planted in other places. But as we've really grown to understand viticulture, soil types, rootstock selections, we've realized that, that there are um, a range of expressions across a slope like Rivera, which is a very big vineyard site. I mean, it's huge. But there are sweet spots in Rivera that are as good a dirt as anywhere in, in, in Piedmont or Barolo. Well, the implication wasn't that it was inferior to anywhere. Right. It just it doesn't get the love. But it was one of those sites that I think was misplanted a lot of it. Was right. There were people planting Barbera there or, or Dolcetto there, and there, because they weren't really understanding um, the rootstock selections or the clonal right. selections or viticultural management in the same way that we do now. And I, so yeah. both of you answer this. So in the past 25, 30 years, that's been addressed, right? You've taken all the sites and made all the proper plantings, or even longer ago, right? Right, right. So every parcel is properly placed now. Yeah, yeah. The historic we, memory is really important about that. Yeah, I mean, do you agree? That yeah, now? I mean, it's one of my uh, the things that I really respect about Walter is that he is a very technically trained winemaker and understands all of the science in both the winery and in viticulture, but is doing that to make sure that he is able to let the site really reflect itself, not to input his own thumbprint on the wines. And I think that's where we've seen a shift in in Piedmont. And one of the reasons that Rivera is now starting to really be put towards the forefront is because as we realize when you really d- dial into clonal selection, which Walter does, which you know now has become a cool thing to do in Piedmont, and there's so many more people that are talking about clonal selection as we start to bring those things back, but it's been something that you've been doing for 20 years. Right. So, 20, longer, so Walter, is, is, that, is that a modernist approach or is that the traditional approach? Mm-hmm. I mean, because people will say there's a modern style, there's a traditional style. I mean, where are we at on that sort of range? At, 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 yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, because Brahm said, you, you know, you have a very keen technical sense yeah, towards um, that. For me, it's quite reductive talking about modern and traditional especially in the wines of this, this period of the world. 
Uh, for me, uh, the wines uh, are my wines are postmodern. Postmodern. <laughs> okay. Yes. Because uh, are full of tradition, but uh, also are right for the day that we are living now. Uh, wines that uh, are full of elegance, wines with uh, great character, very pure. Wines that have a great pair with the, the kind of food that people eat today. So you're taking, you're taking a great grape, a great area, great sites, yeah, and I, you're doing everything best possible. I think I think it's the 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 problem with modern versus traditional when we talk about Piedmont is you're talking. Well, it's like natural wine. It's a pretty open moniker, but you got to go with well, it. Well, it, it kind of isn't. It isn't. It was traditionally the Baroli boys when you were talking about them using small barrels versus big barrels and 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 new French oak versus you know big neutral Boti. That was that was the modern versus traditional. But I think when I say you know he has a very under, high level understanding of modern winemaking and viticulture, it's so that he can res respect the tradition and and match it to the site. And I think what's really great about Piedmont right now is you have all of this outside perspective, but they're now, rather than trying to change themselves to become somebody else, they're using the understanding of the technology, the science, to highlight their terroir rather than try to make it into something that it's not. Is that, is that a generational thing? Is that the vaulters and the next generation? Is that their preference or not well, necessarily that alone? I think it's happening on a global scale. I mean, you can certainly speak to it in Piedmont, but like you look at the colonial selection in Burgundy, like that's a thing that wasn't really so much part of their viticultural expressions 50 years ago, but now you talk about, you know, 667 or 115 or all these different clones of Pinot Noir, and that's what winemakers are looking at trying to match it to the best kind of site expression. But my question is, who's doing that? Is, is yeah. it the next generation that cares about that? Because the older guys obviously didn't do it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Walter? I mean, I, I, it, for me, it, I, do, I try to do wines for the new generation. In fact, I produce one Barolo that is, is for that, because I want to, to get the possibility, first of all, that uh, the new wine lovers start to drink Barolo, not after 20 years, but sometimes right. earlier. That's it's important. Yeah. Cascina Nuova. Cascina Nuova. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but as, as I speak today with other, other people that Barolo Ravera, for example, that 2015, we opened a bottle this, this morning and the wine, I, this is the later, the late, uh, later uh, vintage release. Uh, it's the current vintage? The current vintage, right. yeah, sorry. Uh, and uh, when in past you open a bottle like this and it's so approachable, so drinkable. Uh, Even though it's young? Yeah. And Brahm, it could take what kind of bottle age? Well, I mean, that's the conversation, I think, that, you know, traditionally... Like we have the fortunate ability to sell wines from even even from um, uh, Elvio Cogno from the 70s and, and, and 80s that the wines were um, when they were under the Marcarini label were were very traditional and those wines are still very much alive. But when they were young, they were probably very tannic and very unapproachable and not having the same you know. Um, 
uh, elegance right out the, off of the bat because of the way they were being made and the, the just kind of what was tradition then. And I think that, I don't necessarily think that these wines are any less ageable, in all honesty. I think it's right. the approachability. More approachable earlier. Yeah. and, and Which I think is gonna, important for new drinkers. The reality is, is Barolo is always a food wine. Yeah. Right. It just is. It's never going to be a sitting cocktail wine. It's going to want food. But the the aggressiveness of 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 Barolo, I think, as you start to understand um, maceration times and all those other things that come into it during winemaking, um, you can have a Cascino Nuovo, which is a, I think that wine's beautiful in like the three to seven year range, right? Like it's great on release. It will certainly develop in bottle. It could age well beyond that. That's not to say that it won't be a right. fifteen year. You know. Yeah, Bram, I wanted to just to, to tell, tell, uh, tell you that uh, also the, the wines are more drinkable, no, not became uh, we change something uh, in, uh, in the vinification, but what change is the, the viticultural aspect. Right. Because uh, the wines are less tannic now because we follow the phenolic maturation very well of the, of the grape. So in we're talking more time. in the field than in the cellar, right? More in the vineyard. In the vineyard. Yeah. yeah. No, the, in past, for example, we talk about uh, wines of 40 years ago uh, of my father-in-law. As uh, Bram told, it is a little more tannic initially and then age well. But sometimes there are wines that are tannic initially and die tannic. Very, right. Right. Don't have any, any evolution. They don't evo right. Because the wines... At that time, we don't have, we are not so great viticultural as today. Now we have more equipments, we are more uh, more information. We are became really great viticulture, and that get the possibility to get to have wine that are drinkable, young, but age so well, so well. I think you're, you're getting more balance in the vineyard. Yeah. So that there's less manipulation in the wine, right? right. Almost, right which is definitely not a trend, but a, a good thing, and yeah, more people are doing it. You know. right. um, there's definitely, you can address this, Brom, there's definitely been an uptick in the interest in Barolo. I mean, it's always been a great wine. It's always been a great food wine. But I think you're seeing more on lists. You know, in Italian restaurants, you know, you're seeing more on lists. You're seeing more in stores. You're seeing more people collecting it. Is that, do you see that? Yeah, for sure. Why? I mean, I think. A lot I mean, of why is it having its moment? It's not its last moment, but yeah. why is it? It's, I think. I think there's a number of reasons. So one, the wines have been world class for a very long time, um, and they age really well. Oftentimes, they've been for a very long time. Um, Barolo and Barbaresco have been a great value compared to other parts of the world. Like you look at. Um, uh, sometimes you look at Bordeaux or Burgundy or other the kind of let's say more traditionally popular areas. Those wines can be very expensive, and when you're talking about Vandegard or wine that they're being held for a very long time. But I also think there's just been an ex like as as we understand the subtleties of all these different crews and these different vineyard sites, we realize that not all Barolo are, uh, are, the, are the same, right? Not all Barolo are, are there. There's true site difference. That, that can certainly trump winemaking here. And Which I think, Burgundy always carried and, that torch. And real collectors or enthusiasts want to understand a, a sense of place, right? And I think that's the key. And not that Barolo has not always, or Barbaresco has not always had a sense of place, but I think it's becoming much more apparent how actually complex the area really is. Right. 
as we start to understand these different site expressions. Um, what are we drinking right now? We're going to talk about wines at the end of the show, but we're drinking during the show. What's in our glass right now, Walter? No, we have uh, Barbaresco Bordini, single vineyard. So Neve. Bordini is the vineyard? Yeah, is the crew. Is the crew? Yeah. It's Barbaresco. Barbaresco is, is the wine. The wine. Uh, a Nebbiolo grape. Nebbiolo grape. 2014. 14. A challenge vintage. Challenging vintage. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But but uh, the story of how Walter got into Bordini is a great one, I think, because this is a site that most people probably haven't heard of, but I think it's a lovely site, and he has a good eye for it. And uh, I think he. You want to tell the story about how yeah, you were yeah. able to bring Bordini in? Yeah. We, since 2006, I, uh, I, uh, I started to produce this, uh, this wine. Um, I have a dream to produce also Barbaresco, because Barolo producers uh, often don't want to produce Barbaresco, because uh, we, are, we are making the king of the wine. And, uh, right, to step down or something, yeah. Screw that. But uh, I like uh, Nebbiolo in their different expression. I like Gattinara, I like Gamma, I like Lessona. There are great wines that come from Nebbiolo. And uh, I want to, to, have, to be a good ambassador of uh, Barbaresco too, a good winemaker, because it's, uh, it's a challenge too for me. Right. For me yeah? uh, and uh, I, I rent a small uh, plot of, um, of a small winners Barbaresco in Neve, because Neve represents uh, for me a, a terroir a little bit more near to the elegance and the finesse compared also my Barolos. And, uh, and from that time, I, I started to produce 10,000 bottles, Barbaresco, uh, in the same way that I produce Barolo. I don't uh, change the, the vinification. Or, or Again, we need to have a beautiful grape for making great wine. This, so you're saying you that. make Barbaresco the same way you make the Barolo. Yeah, I just change a little bit of the yeah. time of aging because by law, right. can age less. There are different yeah. restrictions yeah. in all yeah. of that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the, uh, the Bordini. Barbaresco is large barrel, 15 month large barrel, and fermentation quite long, around uh, 30 days on the skins. Um, Brahm, if people wanted to think about collecting, or, you know, if they keep 30, 40 bottles in the house and they yeah. want to have four, five, six. Um, you know, we're not talking collectors or big money guys. Sure. What's the best way, you know, to get into this and taste the right wines? Yeah, I, I would say if you think you like Barolo, it would be really good to buy, or think you like Nebbiolo, let's just start there. Right. right? To buy, the, let's say, three bottles of the same producer uh, and... Um, uh, let's say five or six different producers, right? So a case of wine from five, four or five different producers. Uh, and you drink a bottle of each all side by side when you buy them, right? And then you put the other two bottles that are left of each one, you know, somewhere that they, they're gonna be okay storage-wise, so in a basement or wherever, in a wine fridge in your kitchen or whatever. And a year from now, you try the same thing and you see what you liked. And then a year from then, you try the same thing with that last bottle, and you said, okay, what did I like out about these wines? Okay, what did I not like? Where were my top three, top two, whatever it is? And then you go and you buy a case of that wine, or the now you're sure. of that wine. And you know that you like that producer, you like that 
vineyard site. The vintage is certainly going to change, right, and have an impact. But then once you have that case, you can now decide, I can drink a bottle every year or two and decide where you like that wine in its arc, right? Because not everybody likes old wine. Sometimes there's right. something really nice about a young, vibrant That's how you're going to find out. Yeah. This episode is presented by Henry's Wine and Spirit, a go-to shop for anyone interested in natural wines and boutique spirits. There's a large selection of everything from orange wines, pet gnats, and reds from around the world. Whether visiting the shop in person or online, looking for a gift for a loved one, or that everyday dependable bottle, you're sure to find lots of interesting wines at Henry's. There's free shipping on orders over $300 on the website henrys.nyc and case discounts when you visit the store located in Bushwick. Cheers. To get into that, I mean, are we buying Barolo? You know, yeah. to, to do what you're saying, yeah. you know, requires a little investment, not crazy. Sure. I mean, we're talking Barolo, maybe Barbaresco, but do Barolo. What's somebody going to pay for a bottle that makes sense to hold it for a few years and evaluate it? So I think the MSRP on the Bordini is somewhere around 40 I think. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, like, so that's yeah, a great retail, value. Yeah, something like that. That's a great value. value. Yeah. And that's a great bottle of wine. And so if, if it all depends on scale, right? So the Lange, so an understanding a little bit about wine law can help you in, in investing, right? So you have Lange Nebbiolo, which is a category, which is not Barolo, it's not Barbaresco, but some of the big, right. the great producers will declassify or buy grapes that they want to use for those wines. And if you only want to, if you only can spend $20, a bottle, that's a great option for you, right? And then as you make a little bit more money, you can spend up a little bit. That's a good intro into the region. Yeah, and 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 frankly, like... But you answered the question right, because I'm talking about collecting. Yeah. You know, sort of the next level up. Collecting, it's really about producers, right? That's the the thing for me that's really important, is is finding a producer that you really like and then buying into that producer, because a a producer that you like is going to find a way to make great wine year in, year out. Even in a difficult vintage like 14, right? people made great wine. Right. The, the good producer will take a tough vintage, and, and Conio certainly fits under this that. This is the vintage that uh, yeah. I have to show who is This who is the vintage that gave you those gray hairs <laughs> over there on the, yeah, above your ear and all work. of that. Um, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk specifically about your wines. Okay. Um, I want to taste some more wines. I want to subject you to to our wine list, which is a bunch of questions we answer, ask our guests. And then at the end, we'll take you know the best couple of wines and we'll taste and evaluate them. We're talking to Brom Callahan and Walter Fasori from Elvio Conio. Um, Brom is with the Himmel Hospitality Group. You're listening to The Grape Nation. We'll be right back. All right, we're back. We're back with our guests, Walter Fasori from Elvio Conio and Brom Callahan from the uh, Himmel Hospitality Group. Um, let's get specific now. Let's get into, we talked a little about Barolo and who you are. Let's talk, um, let's talk about your wines. Okay. Um, so I had mentioned earlier <clears throat> that you had the great opportunity to work side by side with your father-in-law, which I'm sure is very important to who you are and what you do wine-wise. When he left, was it Marcarini? 
Yeah. When he left Marcarini, 1990. did he do anything drastically different or wanted to do things, you know, at Conio that he wasn't doing, or he took his knowledge base and applied it to the area? No, he brought uh, the experience uh, of him uh, in, the new, in the new winery in, La, in Novello, when we bought uh, Cascina Nuova in Ravenna. Uh, he brought his experience that was amazing. Uh, but uh, what I can say that uh, initially we need to study a little bit uh, the difference that you find through Brunate crew, for example, that, and Ravera. Uh, because it is the magical aspect of the, the Lange, of the Barolo area, that the different uh, communes uh, get uh, different wines with different character, different uh, uh, notes, different flavors. Right. And uh, initially we need to, to study a little bit uh, how the Ravera can get the best, the best uh, wine. Uh, also for him... It was so it goes, to, it goes to site, right? You know, forget what you did. I'm at this site, and what do we different do with this time, site, right? Yeah. Different time of, uh, of the harvest, uh, different condition, climate condition. And also was a, a, a challenge for my, my father-in-law that have a great experience. Uh, in fact, uh, after f 10 years, we started to do a really great wine, my opinion, in Ravera. But uh, what is really important, don't forget, is the vision that my father-in-law has had when, when uh, he bought Ravera, because he knows perfectly, perfectly the result that we can get there. Because he, he born in Novello and know very well that place. So you don't spend money for buying uh, a farm in a, in a, uh, a place uh, not so great. Yeah, I think, I think understanding the fact that like, your father-in-law saw greatness in the place, but then needed to understand how to apply his experience to the vineyard. Yeah. Right, because every vineyard is going to react differently right. yeah. to certain situations and all the history that he had with Bernate or Canubi or wherever that those didn't they, they applied but didn't really apply so you kind of have to pivot pivot a little bit yeah um, have you made changes from what he's done I mean have you done things that you feel are better uh, yeah of course I changed a little bit uh, not uh, too much in the the style or in the right. in the vinification. <clears throat> what we changed that uh, we adapted also uh, our days uh, with the new equipments. We have new uh, technologies that help to do be and become more traditional producer. Right. This is the the key. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, we, as told you before, that uh, uh, the viticulture aspect. Is became more and more uh, focus on, and uh, now we have uh, wines, uh, grape, uh, very super mature, phenolic maturation well done, uh, seeds brown, uh, uh, skins uh, don't have too much green tannins, stem this stem very brown too, right. uh, very not only sugar and acidity and pH analysis, more. but with a we taste the grape flavor. Flavors. Now, what about practices? Let's start in the vineyard. Um, mm -hmm. Sustainability, organics. I mean, what, what, what can you do? What are you, you doing? What do you question. want to do? Thank you. 
because uh, I am quite reticent to talk about this argument. But uh, because... Uh, Let it go. <laughs> we live in the middle of the winners. Uh, Bram knows very well my, my, my winery, and uh, he's, uh, he can uh, confirm what I say. Um, I am organic for already from ten year, more than 10 years because uh, I live in the middle of the winter. I want your kids are running around in there. Right. Yeah. I want preserve my health first that to have opportunity to sell more wine. And you want the soil and the vineyards to live on, yeah. right? Yeah. But no, I want to conclude this this uh, this Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. Uh, so it's important became organic for uh, because I feel in my heart that this aspect and then that helped to do a better wine I am so happy in fact I have seen that since I started to become organic after 10 years not immediately that is very important the vines start to work in other way and the wines are became more uh, more fusion you have the components is more harmonic right. and the wines became also more drinkable Great to okay, hear. You like to have a diamond with many faces, and in the end, you have a ball around. Understand what I mean? Yep. In your yep. mouth. What <laughs> about, so take that into the cellar now. People, we all know people can be organic, sustainable, even biodynamic, and then they get into the cellar and do the cellar. The cellar, I, I mean, low intervention. I mean, what are you doing in there? Less possible. Right. We want to, do, to make uh, very uh, natural wines, uh, because now everybody talking about natural wines. But in the end, uh, the wines are made with the grape and with right. not the chemical. Right. We are, when you call it, we are wine grower. Your mindset carries through I am wine grower and I am proud to be wine grower. Right. Don't use yeast, don't use nothing. The chemical is stay outside of my wine. That's nice to hear. Um, Brom, I've had the wines over and over. They have a crystalline purity. There's great acidity. Um, there's a freshness to it. Is Do you think that's a trademark of Rivera and Cogno or the region? I mean, is that a descriptor for Barolos or good Barolos? Or? So I would say that good Barolo is, is um, so elegant and light on its feet while also still being incredibly powerful, right? That's the appeal of great Barolo, or great Nebbiolo, right? Right. Um, and that certainly has to do with site. You know, Rivera has some uh, absolutely, like, prime real estate when it comes to having uh, the ability to grow great, great Nebbiolo there. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with winemaking, uh, or uh, lack of winemaking, honestly, like right. the, the ability to let the site speak through. Um, because uh, that's really important, right? If you have a great site, and a lot of the clonal research and work that Falter has done in the vineyard is then be able to be expressed in the wines by being as minimalist as possible in the cellar, right? So that really he's there to guide the wines, but the expression comes from the place. Right, right, that's important. Um, let's talk about those wines specifically. So you make Barolo, Barbaresco, Barbera, Dolcetto, 
and we'll spend a minute at the end and what is it nasetta nasetta which is something that you kind of rein back in um this is a good time to maybe pour the next wine and while you're telling me so just quickly go through how many barolos you make you know let's talk about them by name and then you know the other bottlings you know what are the important bottlings yeah. uh, before to, uh, to talk about the, the single Barolo, I want to explain that we are a, a Barolo producer that, that make only one crew, that manage only one crew, is Ravera. But we produce four different Barolo that come from the same crew. So this is more Burgundy project. Not so are those, the difference are sites? Right. Okay. The single vineyards. So everything's made in Rivera. And not only, right. also the, the clones. We're working on the clones. Okay. And that is more difficult because uh, you need to put in evidence the, the characteristics of the clones and the single parcel. Uh, it's a more Burgundy project, and uh, that gets uh, the possibility to show to our customer and the wine lovers that uh, a contiguous winners make two different wine and two different results. So the the youngest Barolo, not by vintage, but since you made it, wines. is what, Elena or? No, the youngest is Cascina Nuova. Cascina Nuova is, Barolo. okay. Yeah, yeah, it's 15 years old vines. Then? Ravera, Ravera is the flagship Barolo, 70 years old Okay, vines. Pernice. Then there's Pernice that is uh, a tribute to Elvio Cogno because he's a winner that uh, he told me that was the best uh, seat of uh, Ravera. Okay. And I bought it in 2005. And he told me, if you have a possibility to buy uh, another gra another winner, please buy Brico Pernice. And, uh, and then there's. And I bought in 2005 when I was did. already sick. Then there's. And then Vigna Elena, and no, uh, Brico Pernice is as 50 years old. It's Lampia clone 100%. And uh, the last one is Vigna Elena, planted in 1991. Uh, Rosé clone, this is very, very unique. It's a distinctive clone, uh, uh, it's a different biotype of Nebbiolo, it's a wine that uh, nobody uses anymore until uh, years ago. Now other producers start to, to produce again, and uh, I am proud because I make a track about this grape, about these clones, when in the 90 years nobody wanted to plant, because uh, the trend of the market was to produce powerful wine, uh, overripe body wines, bodybuilding wine, I know. <laughs> and uh, now, th and this wine is completely opposite. Elegance, finesse, uh, nice. Pinot Noir style, you know, it's more of flowers notes. And we tasted the Barbaresco. Do you make one Barbaresco, the Bordini? Yeah, Bordini okay, yeah. so that's your Barbaresco. Yeah. And then you make a Barbera, Bar two two Barberas? Barbera, two Barberas. It's Barbera Bricco dei Merli and Barbera Prefiloxa. Right. This is another uh, unique wine. Okay. Come and from a one year old, 120 years old. And then you make a Dolcetto? And Dolcetto because uh, Dolcetto is always a wine in, our, in uh, El Biocogno family important. Okay, so it'll always because, be part of yeah, the... Yeah, and uh, El Bucogno always take care about the Dolcetto, not because, uh, don't worry about it was cheaper wine. I, I produce Dolcetto because it's a, our Piemonte wine. Right, our, it's important to yeah. you. 
It's part of for our history, our tradition. And then lastly, there's a white grape. White is not prom. White is not a prominent grape in Barolo. Nechetta. But you had a hand in not letting this grape disappear, right? Nachetta? Right. This is a What's the story? behind this, this wine. More of a passion project? Absolutely. Okay. As all other wines, but no, Prefilosera but... is passion. Nachetta probably is the most wine that show to everybody who is Albiocoin, who is Albiocoin winery, because we start to produce a wine that nobody knows. 1,000 bottles, 1994, was, is a grape, was completely disappears, and they start to produce and became a DOC after 10, 20, 10 years, and now there are 40 producers that make Nachetta. So oh, really? this, <laughs> Jesus. when we start, nobody makes Nachetta, and it's a really great work. Don't look, don't look the money aspect. I look only the, the passion. Yeah, it's not a get rich scheme. No, not, I get that. I don't become rich for the for the nachetta, but I get the possibility to taste a very unique wine with great terroir. What is the grape? Nachetta. Nachetta is the, the grape. grape, right? And is it blended or it's 100 no, percent nachetta? nachetta yes. Do you blend any of your wines? No, no. none. Okay. All wine is 100% the same wine. Because there are some Barola makers Great. that'll take, you know, some of the no, no. stuff and, you yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, you'll it. see, the uh, Gaia used to do that in his Barbaresco where you put a little bit of Barbera in there. But yeah, legally, you can't, legally, you can't bottle it as Barola or Barbaresco unless it's 100% right. of the old. Right. Um, all right, so those are all the wines. You know, Barolo leads the uh, charge, and then you have the Barbaresco, the Barberas the Dolcetto and the Nechetta, which is an interesting story. Um, so you've overseen significant wine programs. Um, were you always heavily locked into Barolo, or you've seen that? Is that a passion play of yours, Brahm, or because of the interest, the growth? Yeah, I mean, I, I love fine wine to start and have been, um, you know... In, in well, I know you like fine wine. wine. I'm asking you about Barolo. Well, specific to Barolo, it's something that um, uh, has always had a strong representation on our wine list because I think, um, it, certainly depending on the, the restaurant business model, um, can be great pairings with food. But then also, one of the things that I think is really important is that a wine list always has to have places where there's a huge amount of value built in. And one of the things that I always felt was really important with Barolo for the most part, right, or Barbaresco for the most part, if it says it on the label, there's a certain assumed quality level, right? And if you're willing to work on some margins on our end to give a great bottle of wine for less money to our guests, that wine is going to over-deliver and help them come back to that area. So it's an area that I've always been very passionate about. I, I love the wines. Some of the first wines I started collecting were from, from Piedmont. And, um, and so was very passionate about giving that experience to our guests. Uh, and now, you know, obviously, the awareness of the wines has just gotten exponentially better. Does that push prices up a little? In some places, yeah. Do ratings sure. and people talking about it? Yeah, I mean, but it's the way of the world, right? I mean, milk, yeah. milk is not the same price it was 10 years ago, no. nor is gas. No, so, no. Um, but if you get a rating in a publication or something, it seems to jack up the price, or if Psalms are buying it up, there's less availability. Yeah, it's always the, the struggle, especially as we globalize in the market. But there's always somebody new, right? I mean, at some point, you, you know, Avilconia was the new kid on the block. 
right? Um, and relatively speaking, right? I mean, yeah. not not in reality of yeah. their experience or any of that, but like it was a new winery that was related to an older winery, right? That that for a very long time um, had to you know, make sure that their reputation was built on every bottle. So there's, and there's always somebody new and there's somebody's son or daughter that is going and doing something different, or maybe they're going to come back to the other, the, to the fold of the family or whatever. But it, it's a, it's a landscape that changes, right? So you, there's always value to be found if you're going to look. So Walter, you're in town because of the wine experience, grand tasting. Yeah. And I saw on Alexandra's Instagram stories, you were holding a Critics Choice Award. So you've been recognized. I'm sure everyone didn't get one, right? Yeah. So that's congratulations to that. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's that nice to hear. A very um, great uh, time for me because this is the first time that I participate in the wine experience. And uh, oh, I it is. Yeah. Uh, pretty good uh, luck, first time award. Good for yeah, you. and that is uh, also a tribute to, to the work that we have done in the years. And I quite deserve, I think. But uh, good for you. When somebody else uh, get an award, uh, we we feel very happy. Absolutely. Good for you. Good for you. Good for Barolo, the region. You know, good awareness, good recognition. All right, we're going to move to a thing called the wine list. I do this with all my guests. I ask everyone five questions about their wine preferences. Don't dwell on it. Don't give me long answers. It's spontaneous. I like that. So here's the question. And Walter will go first, then Brahm, you answer. The first question is, what are you drinking now? And the context is, what are you trying? What are you tasting that's seasonal? What's in your fridge? What do you, I know we're drinking this now, but what are some of the things that you're trying or liking? Is there anything? Apart this wine. Besides this. <laughs> you have to drink other stuff. I like to try many wines, of course. What do you like to try? I love uh, some white. Uh, what kind? I love uh, Riesling from uh, Germany. Okay, so that, there you go. Give me one more, German Riesling. <laughs> and... Uh, I like Alsace white wine. Alsatian white wines. Okay, that's good. And I like uh, Bourgogne white. Okay. All good And ones. then red, uh, many others. Of course. <laughs> what about you? Are you, is there a region, a grape, something that's interesting you? Yeah, or? no, I mean, so I'm certainly seasonal, uh, but I now find that I pretty much drink champagne every day. Um, Why not? Right? I, yeah. You know, I think... Uh, and a, a lot more white wine uh, these days. Um, Has champagne on your list exponentially expanded like in the last pers- five? My t- personal list, or in the, in the no, restaurant? no restaurants too. Partly because I, I like. That yeah, like yeah, but that's who drives yeah, the we, cause. We now have close to two hundred different champagnes. On, right, on that didn't exist correct. in some steakhouses or fine restaurants yeah. years ago. All right, good job on that. This is the goofiest question of the bunch, but I'm curious. Do you have a favorite wine and food pairing? Not something you necessarily eat every night, every month, but what's the perfect wine and food pairing for you? Mm, truffles. Okay, truffles and, is a good answer for no, any No, no, truffles and the wine, I tell you. Okay. We're talking about my wine. Well, but truffles, what, on pasta? No, pasta. I mean, terrine. Okay. Terrine. Raviolo, raviolo, raviolo in pasta. Okay. Is the name. Cover of truffles and uh, barbaresco. Well, 
Okay. Not Barolo? Not Barolo? Barbaresco? Barbaresco, I tell Okay. All right. Give me not what you think is the best, what you like or have or works for you. Sure. So, I mean, I, I will say I also am a big <laughs> yeah, fan okay. of truffles. And uh, there's a local pasta in, in Piedmont called Paris <laughs> that I love with Barolo and, and, and truffles. But um, probably one of my favorite pairings that I think is not talked about at, at all is um, Barolo Quinato uh, with chocolate. Ah, uh, so Barolo why Canato, does it work? Barolo Quinato is like a digestif, um, a local digestif there. And it with chocolate is maybe one of the most magical. Take a second things. to tell me what it is. When you say a digestif, it's made with herbs and spices. It's a so it's a Nebbiolo grape. It's it's, it's Barolo that is aromatized, and kind of like vermouth ish. They don't do anything to the wine. They just add aromatics or whatever. And it's fortified too. Okay. Yeah. What do they fortify it with? Neutral grape spirit. Okay. All right, so that's a first for the show. It's an awesome pairing. Okay. It's, like, it's such an eye-opening pairing when you have it with, like, good chocolate or, like, uh, uh, a chocolate dessert. All right, let's – this. the next question is your favorite wine restaurant or wine bar. Now, that's tough. Bar. Because, well, <laughs> how should we do this? Should we make you both answer in New York? Should we do hometown or anything? If you had to pick anywhere – a place that you go into that just has great wine service, people who know their stuff and enjoy it. Is there anything locally? <laughs> it's a difficult question. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot. I prefer the Nazar about this question. Okay, I mean, it can be exclusive sometimes. You get home and, Walter, why didn't you mention me and, you know, whatever. Uh, there is many, many places uh, that uh, I like to be there. Uh, In, at home? No, or here, here. New York. Okay. New York. We're talking about New York, of course. In Piemonte, okay, it's more easy to, for me to answer. Give me one great place in Piemonte for wine and food, not just food. Wine and food, I think uh, there is, uh, I can, can say two. Yeah, it's sure, sure. Completely sure. different. Yeah. Okay, one is uh, Il Tornavento in Treiso. Okay. And uh, then another one in Saralunga is Ciccio Centro Storico. Say that again slowly, because I have to. I post all this stuff okay. for our listeners. This is uh, il tornavento. Okay. La, la ciao del tornavento. Right. Sorry. In Treiso is one in Barbaresco area, because is the cellar is amazing and the food, both again, uh, and another is this is a very one star Michelin restaurant. Okay, but and the other is a trattoria, very small place. Casual. Casual. In uh, Saralunga, that called Ciccio Centro Storico. Okay. The Ciccio Centro It's pretty fantastic. Is it? It's underneath okay. the church. So there's another valley. He's got amazing champagne. Yeah. It's got, he's just like salumi. It's his mom and him. Yeah. Uh -huh. And uh, I, I drank, I could tell you the last time I was there, I drank uh, 89 Sir Winston Churchill from Paul Roger. Paul Roger. I drank an 82 Valero from uh, uh, Vietti. Yeah. Okay. And uh, something else. So he's got some interesting stuff. Now, I'll let you answer the question the way you want. So let's do two things. So if we're eating at a Himmel restaurant, sure. Um, do you have a favorite? Oh, like my friend Risto, who yeah. runs the wine program. Maria is, you know, the flagship, but he goes, you know what? Come to Asteria Marini. You know, that's more yeah. my soul. How do you answer that? 
So I would say for me, um, they're all excellent. They all do different things, and they all actually have very different beverage programs too. Um, but as far as like a, a wine and food place, I, the Grill Grill Twenty Three and Bar is is like it's just an unparalleled service experience, and the quality is fantastic. The wine list is un, unreal, um, you know, and it's a happy place for me. Um, that that's all you need to answer. All right, fourth out of the fifth question. Do you have a favorite all-time wine? Is there a wine that still resonates with you that was just terrific? You know, is it an older wine? Is it a wine where the experience was great? What's a wine that's important to you that you've had in the past? One of the wines that are... And I know there's more than one, but just yes. pull one out. Okay. Uh, a wine that showed me a really... A great uh, power of the of the Nebbiolo is uh, a wine that remains in my heart. There are two wines. That's what I'm looking one for. One is uh, Aldo Conterno uh, Barolo Cicala, 1988. 88? 88. Was and 88 a good vintage year? It was. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. And another wine is uh, Barolo El Bioconio Marcarini, 64, Brunate. So it was when Elvio was at Marcarini, yeah. the 64. 64. Okay. That's what I'm looking for. What about you? You've been around a decent amount of wine. Yeah, you know. more than my fair share. Um, so the, one of the wines that got me serious about wine was a 91 Shah of Hermitage. Um, I knew a little bit about Burgundy and Bordeaux at that point and really hadn't started exploring the Rhone and drank a 91 Shah against two very serious producers, and it was like like a mind-bending experience for me. Do you still have an affinity for uh, Northern Rhone wines? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, that's, that's a favorite. I have an affinity for Shaw at this point. Okay, yeah. all right. Um, good answer on that. <laughs> all right, here's the last question, and Rom, you could probably answer it easily. But I ask my guests, recommend a wine for 15 to $20 American. Okay, and here's the setup, and I say it over and over. I have kids now, they're in their 20s, mid-late 20s. They can't show up at a party with a crappy wine for $8, $10, but they're not spending 30 40 So if they go in with 15 20 21 bucks, 16 what kind of wine should they bring? You can give me a category like Muscadet. You can give me a maker. Well, I need a red from you, and I need a white. A name, a name. Or, or a grape or whatever. You know, you could say... Brahm, you are easy for you. <laughs> Brahm, you go first. Yeah, you yeah. want to think? You go for No, no, he'll take your lead. Okay. We'll, we'll help him. But, Brahm, you should be able to handle this. Yeah, so you manage much wine than me in yeah, terms of price. And it's, you know. yeah, it's totally fair. So I would say... Um, Chenin Blanc. Chenin Blanc for the White. Valley. Yeah, like you can spend 15, 20 bucks and get a good or sometimes a great bottle of wine if you're willing to spend it. Can you think of more. a producer offhand? Yeah, well, I mean, there's, there's certainly plenty that are, um, I would say that the like, benchmark producers there, you can spend $25 and get a benchmark producer. So like jump up to somebody like Francois Chedain or Huet uh, and get some of their, you know. You're killing it with those guys. The basic yeah. bottlings, right? And they're, yeah. and they're you know, exponentially um, punching above their weight. What about um, red? For the red, it's certainly harder. Um, I like um, Etna right now a lot, I think. Great value. Um, yeah, well, I think there's some very good Norello being made. Um, uh, so from 
Mirella Mascalese from, from Etna. And there's a bunch of producers that are making high-end offerings, but there's also a lot of wine that's being produced in the, let's say, 15 to $25. By those guys? Some by those guys, but also others as well. And as the category picks up and they start to plant more there, and I think the wines are really, really very, um, I would say, consumer-friendly because they have a lot of fr- Even though they're an old-world <coughs> wine, that they have a sense of place, but they have a lot of fruit. Can you think of a wine. maker or two? Yeah, so um, the Altamora from, um, so it's a bottle, it's a Cusimano product. Property. So the Cusimano wine. Cusimano is the winery. Make Nordavola. They make wine all over right. Sicily, right? They make a lot of wine that mm-hmm. from all these different places, but they have a property that's just in Etna, and the wines are awesome, and they're super reasonable, um, and they're like you know a compelling sense of place there. So good. Um, like I said earlier, we're going to post those answers. I have a database of the greatest people in wine and their selection. So it's always great to hear from you guys. All right, we're going to end the show with a segment we call the Weekly Wine Sip. That's when we taste a wine on air, spend a little more time with it, and evaluate it. Um, Walter, I know we have four wines here. We drank two. Of the last two, pick one that we should really spend a couple of minutes evaluating. Which wine? Which one do you Rico think? Parnice and uh, Vigna Elena. Both wines that uh, show. All right, so let's do the Parnice. Parnice is uh, 14 again. So 2000, 2014. Is this the current vintage? Yeah, just released, yeah. Okay. All right. So, Brahm, help me evaluate this. Uh, color-wise, typical color, is it lighter or darker? Yeah, I mean, Nebbiolo, one of the things that I think people think that a darker wine is, the stronger it is, but the reality is Nebbiolo is a thin, it's right. a low-pigmented variety, so right. it should be see-through, or uh, low-pigment, low-color uh, density. But because so. of a challenging vintage year, the color is still in line with yeah, what it yeah, should be? Yeah, because yeah, people that are Tuscan wine drinkers, Barol, uh, Bordeaux drinkers, Cali Cab, they hear this as a fine wine, but the profile, yeah, and the they color, get thrown off. Yeah, color really doesn't yeah. equate to quality. It's, it's so how would you describe this color? It's a... So a ruby to garnet. Ruby to garnet. Yeah, you've got a ruby core with a little bit of garnet on the rim just because it's spent time in barrel. Go on the nose for me. What are some of the nose descriptors? Walter, what do you get on the nose? Um, red cherry. Red cherry? Oh, yeah. Uh, also, like very floral. Floral, yeah. Good aromatics on the yeah. floral, red cherry. The, the lilac, lavender, kind of mm. really, uh, but fun. but not chemical, not like. There is meat. lavender in there. But it's like crazy. Fresh flower, right? Yeah. Um, let's go mouthfeel. Two questions. What would you rate the typical mouthfeel of Barolos, and then this? Is it a medium? Is it a medium plus? They're is full-bodied it? wines. Full-bodied. They're full-bodied So wines. more than medium, medium yeah, depending I mean, on the wine? Taste the wine and, and see what your lips are trying to do. Like, they're fighting to separate from your gums. This is a medium plus. And it's tannic. This right? is not a medium, yeah. There's a it's lot of structure there. A lot of structure, very mouth-filling and all yeah. of that. All right, does the palate um, replicate the nose in any ways? What do we get on the palate? I think so. I yeah. think the, the, the cherries. Yeah, but it's also more herbal for me on the palate. There's more like anise and licorice, um, a little more truffly kind of mushroomy too. Yeah, uh, black truffle too. Yeah, yeah. And it's almost. Would like this be good with truffles? This wine? <laughs> no, there is black. <laughs> Not oh, white. Oh, yeah, screw the black. <laughs> Only the Italians can really split hairs between white and black. Truffles. I'd be like, yes, I'll take both. 
both. <laughs> All right, listen, normally I have to wrap up the show, but I say screw it. We have one more bottle in front of us. Let's taste the uh, last wine. What is that? The uh, Elena? Yeah, Reserva okay. 2013. Okay, so we had the 14, two 14s, which you said is a trying vintage. 13 was a good vintage, right? 13 uh, is a great vintage. Great vintage. Yeah. Okay. So this is the... Reserva Vigna Elena, Rosé clone, is very unique. You feel a lot of, no, very floral. The clone wine. is called what, Rosé? Rosé, Rosé. Rosé, okay. Is, uh, we have a little bit less color, but uh, not, not too much. Uh, the color on this, you're saying, is yeah. a little, little, little less, less garnet yeah. and ruby, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. less density, for sure. How about on the nose? Are we getting into a totally different thing on yeah, this wine? High-toned for me. It's more lifted. It's just... It's like if you took that last wine and made it louder, almost, as far as the intensity of it, right? Mm. But it's still elegant, right? That's the amazing yeah. thing about it. Yeah, I mean, all perfumed. the wine. Um, but when you say perfumed, you're picking up things. What are the perfumey things you're picking up? It's that, like, soft flowers, but, like, this is more like roses. Right. It's, it's yeah. like, almost... The lavender is not there from it's the last one. It's not as pungent, but it's still there. It's, Definitely roses. And I also think that, obviously, it's got more bottle age, too, so it's a little more integrated, too. Um, there's a little more leather, tobacco. The mouthfeel... What do you think? I think the the wine is the tannin and acid is a little bit more imbalanced right now. Does that make sense? The last wine, the tannin was a little more forward. Yes. In this wine, the tannin and acid are moving at the same pace. Better balance. I agree with that. And on the palate, what are we getting? Are we getting things that do replicate the uh, nose or? Yeah, I think. For, I mean, for me, there's like a chocolatey, like powdered chocolate, kind of almost like. Jesus, mocha. how do they come up with this stuff? Um, but also the dried fruits, like the dried cherries, mm. a little bit of dried cranberry, too. Mm -hmm. So you have the red fruit, but more in a dry character. Yeah. Not the fresh, you know, yeah, juicy it's, fruit. It's not, like as, it's not as ripe. I would say it's a little bit more, like, restrained. Yes. All right. So what foods are good pairings with these wines? For we uh, talked about... Let's do each. We talked about how well Barolo is... Uh, you know, good food wine. On the pernici, what what? Ravera for me is uh, with meat is uh, the best. Okay, what uh, kind of meats are we talking? We're talking about uh, steak. Steak, steak. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So good red meat. Yeah. Yeah. Anything to add and, to that, uh, Prom? Okay. Steak is good by me. Yeah. Brico pernici is uh, I love with seasoned cheese. Cheese. This is not cheese. Brico okay. is a little bit more uh, power, a little more uh, linear, and I, I uh, need a little bit more uh, fat cheese, for seasoned cheese. Yeah. With some truffle. Yeah. <laughs> the truffle cheese? There you no, go. No, no, without truffle. <laughs> and then uh, uh, the, la, the Brico, uh, Vigna Elena for me is a wine also you can drink uh, without any food in front of your fireplace. That's it, just, it's all about the wine and the yeah. company. Yeah. <laughs> Forget the food. All right, that could go somewhere. Um, I like that. Um, and what's the first wine we drank? The, the Bordini Barbarosco. Yeah. Bordini, we explained with the wine. With oh, that's the, the, that's the one. Okay. All right, so <laughs> if you're confused at this point, I will post everything um, on our social media sites. I'll actually... Um, Alex will remind me to take a picture so when I get home I won't forget everything mm -hmm. and I'll post our 
wine list answers. I will post the wines that we drank tonight. Um, and that's a wrap. Before we close, let me just uh, do a few notices. If you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's sam at thegrapenation.com. You can subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation, on Instagram at sbenruby, and on Twitter at benruby. I know it's confusing, but everything's tied to the hashtag The Grape Nation. As I mentioned, we'll post Walter and Brahms' wine list, all those great answers. And for the weekly wine sip, I will um, list all the wines. If we want to find out more about Elvio Conio wines on social media or on the internet, where do we go? Website? Yeah. Do you have an Instagram page? Yeah, I have Instagram page. I have it's it's at Elvio Cogna, yeah, right? Yeah. Is there an underscore? Is it or? I'll post it. Yeah. I'll post it. And yeah. what about you? Do you post personally or? We have a good team that posts. Uh, okay. We, have a good, we are working well about that. <laughs> I think All right. Everybody say Konyo is very active on the on the social. Yeah. Well, it's kind of free media. You'd be crazy not to participate in it. You know, really. I mean, and. It's all about content, and you have content. You're making wine in the field. You have stories to tell. I mean, it's a nice thing. Brom, where can we follow you and the restaurants? Sure. So my uh, personal um, Instagram is at BeRealSom. So it's B-R-E-A-L? S-O-M-M? BeRealSom. And that's your personal account? Yeah. And then all the restaurants have their own individual Instagram, Facebook accounts, websites. So Grill 23 and Bar is the website, at Grill 23 and Bar. Uh, Harvest Cambridge, uh, so uh, that's uh, the website there. Um, they have their own Instagram as well, post390restaurant.com, and then bistrotomedi.com, and then um, Hudson Yards Grill.com uh, as well. That's the New York location. Yes, sir. And if somebody's silly like me and doesn't remember that, if they went to Himmel Hospitality, is there a website yeah, that breaks all that? Like, if you search Himmel Hospitality, they'll all come they'll, up. They'll come up and all yeah. that, just in case. But I think uh, we'll post all of that, too. All right. I want to thank our guests, Valtor Fasori. Thank you very thank much. Thank you for sitting down. And Brom Callahan, Master Sommelier. Thank you to our engineer, Jeet, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.